This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to I'll Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. Today, you're listening to episode 233, and I'm talking with Jacob Riley. Jacob placed second at the Olympic Marathon Trials in Atlanta, running a time of 2.10.02 with a very exciting sprint to the finish. I've actually been wanting to have Jake on the show ever since he finished as the top American at the Chicago Marathon this past fall. And we were in talks after the race and kind of dropped the ball on that a little bit. So it's really exciting to be able to talk with him after his second place finish at the trials. Jake debuted the marathon in 213-16 in Chicago in 2014, and he finished 15th in the 2016 Olympic Marathon Trials. He struggled with Achilles issues for years and finally underwent surgery in 2018 and has been rebuilding steady since that surgery. When he came back this past fall to finish as the top American in Chicago and ninth place overall in a time of 210-36, he knew he was in a good spot to potentially make the Olympic team, which he just did. Jake is a Stanford alumni and he's coached by Lee Troop and runs with the Boulder Track Club. I was so excited to get to witness Jake coming down that final stretch to make the team and couldn't wait to talk to him post-race. All right, friends, if you are loving this show, if you are enjoying these episodes, please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening and make sure you hit the subscribe button. Those are some of the best ways potential new listeners can find us. And also, if you enjoy this episode, please consider sharing it on social media with your friends so that they can enjoy it too. Coming up next on my Olympic Trials recap episodes, I'll be interviewing Alphine Tuliamak, who won the women's race at the Olympic Marathon Trials. I'm actually interviewing her today, and we'll try to drop that later on today or tomorrow afternoon, which will be Sunday. So stay tuned for that. All right, friends, enjoy my conversation with Jake Riley. Well, today on the podcast, we have a second place finisher from the Olympic Marathon Trials, Jake Riley. Welcome to the show, Jake. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Um, So when you had a really great race in Chicago in the fall, I reached out and we kind of went back and forth a little bit. And now I think it was just meant to be that we have this conversation after the Olympic trials. Yeah, we delayed it until I don't have to answer questions about what I think my chances are. And now I can just say that they are 100 percent, which is a a much better feeling, a much better place to be in. Oh, my gosh. What do you feel like right now? Um, I've been able to get used to it a little bit, um, but... Yeah, I get uh, I, some people in Boulder still didn't know. Like, so I have, I have group members for um, this project I'm working in a class, and they kind of weren't paying attention at all. So I got to like tell them yesterday, um, and so you know, everyone saw. I still get to to go into places and and tell people, and it I don't know every single time it's just like it's like crossing the line again in in miniature, and it just feels yeah, it feels awesome, and you know. Uh, we're already starting to think like a little bit ahead, you know, so we I have this little packet of stuff that's talking about kind of um, where we might be able to stay when we go to Japan and how far we're going to go out. And so now I get to sort of consider all of these, these logistical things and, and all the opportunities I'm going to have over the next five months. And it's just, um, it feels amazing. 
kind I don't of... know, I'm starting to run out of adjectives. And so, um, <laughs> well, congratulations. <laughs> so I'm going to be recycling them a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it, that's an interesting thing that you bring up because I guess if you're not like immersed in the running culture, you know, people know the Olympics are coming up this summer, but if you're not really following the sport, you might not know that the actual marathon trials were, you know, happen in February. Oh yeah. Um, and I also, it's funny. So yeah. So people don't, um, they're, they're not, they don't know. I think a lot of people don't even know how like we select teams, uh-huh. especially cause every sport's different. And then, you know, everybody's got their sports. So they might be paying attention to swimming and have no idea about um, running. So I mean, Boulder's pretty educated about it cause it's obviously a, an outdoorsy town with a ton of runners here. Um, but at the same time, like yeah. John Q public probably has no idea it went off unless they were for some reason skimming through NBC trying to find like, uh, I don't know, uh, the office reruns or something. Um, <laughs> but it's also at the same time, people who don't really understand running at all, they do understand the Olympics. So my grandma has, she's obviously just a very proud, like she's proud of me no matter what I do. But that also means that essentially every, uh, every performance that I have gets essentially equal, uh, equal praise. So I get third at NCAAs and she'll say, Oh, congratulations, Jake. But then I also, I call win, the local Jingle Bell 5K and I get the exact same congratulations <laughs> because I, I don't think she really has like an idea of the, the different scales of running, but she knows what the Olympics are. And so you know, she's on TV there and it's a very, the response just gets a lot bigger there because I think for a lot of people, you know, you see somebody runs a fast marathon, but for a lot of people that pace for that long, isn't, you can't really put that into perspective, but the Olympics, I think everybody has an understanding of how big a deal that is. And so, um, yeah, a lot of people can, can really kind of get a handle on how much it means to me as an athlete to do that. And so everybody's been just really generous and, um, congratulatory and it's been, uh, really fun to experience, um, just at, on the receiving end of that. Okay. I want to hear all about the race. Um, but first, let's just like learn a little bit about you because I know you went to Stanford. I know you've dealt with some major injuries, had surgery over the past, you know, few years, and now you're kind of on this, you're back, you're doing it, and you're obviously doing really big things. But can you just kind of give us a little bit of an intro to who you are and um, when you got into the sport of running? Mm-hmm. So um, when I we moved around a decent amount when I was a kid. My parents have a little bit of a, a travel bug kind of built into them. Um, and so they decided when I was about six or seven, um, that they wanted to try and get an overseas experience. They thought it'd be fun to live in, or you know, a good experience to live in another country. So they got jobs in New Zealand. So we lived in the town of Dunedin, um, which is on the South Island of New Zealand. And in elementary school, they would have tryouts to go. They would send 10 kids to a run at the, the citywide uh, cross country championships. So I didn't know what cross country was. I didn't really know what running was. I played soccer, but, um, it was essentially go out and have fun. But then at that city race, which I qualified for, I ended up winning the city race my first year doing it. And then I got second the next two years and, you know, you get like a little cool medal and get to celebrate it. And so that was sort of my first experience with running at all. Now, I, you know, in soccer, I was always playing midfield or something like that because I had decent endurance. Um, and then it kind of, that inspired me to go out for track when I finally got into 
middle school and they had a slightly more organized sports. And that was when we moved back to the United States. Um, and so I would do track and I remember the, the first day of sixth grade track, they essentially just find out what event you want to do because nobody knows anything. Um, they would just take you around to all the different places where they would practice events and they'd just have you try it out. So you'd go run a hundred and then you'd go try out the high jump and then you'd go try out the long jump, whatever it was just to get experience. And we had this really good athlete in our class. His name was Richard. Actually, I'm not going to go into his last name. His name was Richard. He was, um, he was just winning everything. He'd win the high jump. He'd win the hundred. He'd win the 200. Um, he was like on a traveling AAU basketball team. Like he was, he was the cool kid in school and he was just <laughs> good at everything. Uh, but at the 800, I started to close the distance a little bit and then we ran the mile and it's a little bit ridiculous that we did all of the track events in one day, but, um, <laughs> we got to the mile and I beat Richard Peterson and it was a very big deal. Uh, because who, you know, I was still pretty new to the school at the time and knowing who I was, but I beat Richard Peterson. And that was like a very cool moment for me. And that is where I think that kind of got me into love with the idea of one, that, that joy of competition and the joy of a race well run. Um, and then also kind of put the idea in my head that just running. So not running for another kind of sport, um, was something that I could be good at. And so did track a little bit, um, Bellingham, which is where I'm from Bellingham, Washington. Um, it's a very outdoorsy town. It's very similar in Boulder for a lot of ways. Um, lots of Subarus, uh, <laughs> lots of, lots of ski racks. Um, and so I, I had coaches that were relatively familiar with running, um, kind of more, uh, the, the trail running style of thing. Uh, but Miss Ricci, Mr. Leone, um, they were kind of good guys to just get me into the idea of it, give you some basic ideas about pacing, you know, my first introduction to, uh, intervals and Hills and it's the middle school version. So it's, mostly do 20 minutes of running and then play tag or something. Um, but then we got into high school and I went to see home high school and I was still kind of in that, um, I think early high school runner mode where you're, you're, you're out there for fun for, I think a lot of people when they first start, they're out there for fun. So like when coach sends you out to go do your 45 minute jog about half the time you end up just kind of going and playing hide and go seek somewhere and then running back onto campus when you're done with that. Uh, as soon as you're out of his sight or like you go get ice cream or something. But we had a group of, there were five sophomores in the class ahead of me um, who, and I don't know how they got inspired to where they got their motivation, mo Jesus motivation. Um, but they were just really into running. They were, they were, they were the ones that they would go out and they would actually do the run. They would, um, you know, they would run on the weekends when we didn't have practice, they would run during the summer, they would run during the winter. And I think, Part of it was because they wanted to be good, but part of it is just because they just like running. Mm. And so I got a chance to kind of compete on varsity. Um, and then at that point, you know, you just um, you emulate what you see in front of you. And so that was just my role model for what running was. That was how you'd be good and also how you would have fun because you just got to I didn't have to organize my own runs. I didn't have to be, you know, self-motivated. I could just do what they did. And they were just great teachers. And so um, I kind of tagged along with them. I started to get into, you know, making training kind of a year-round thing. And the improvements just started coming. It really helped that I finally went through a growth spurt, like, junior year. And I got a little bit stronger. Um, 
and so from then on out, it was just running as my thing and it became kind of my identity and, uh, the other rest is history. Yeah. And you, you know, it's interesting as a fan of the sport because I didn't know of you until you were that top American in Chicago. Um, but it's not like you were just like not running. You had a great career at Stanford. I just want to know about this progression that has happened now. Like you, you know, you had your injuries after, after college, you had your surgery to repair it. Did you always envision once that, once you got walked through that, that you would be on this, this path to trying to make an Olympic team? Um, it was always in the back of my mind. I knew that I wanted another crack at it. So, uh, 2016, I was at the trials, but you know, I was not in a, I was not going to be competitive there. Um, and I think part of that was just, that's pretty high, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, but that was not, I think that was more reflective of lots of people having a bad day. I was not, I was not in the race. I was essentially out of it going into the final lap. Right. So there's a difference between, I I think sometimes the, the place doesn't really reflect how much a part of the race you are. So I was never in that front pack making any leads. I was kind of hanging on for a long time. One of the things about a marathon, I think, especially in a championship context is nothing happens until at least halfway. Mm -hmm. So like, and this was, this was true, um, on Saturday as well. Like the first two laps were essentially boring. It was like, it was just, (laughs) we need to get to the place where the race is going to start. So most of your job early on is just don't get tired or sorry, don't, don't use up too much energy, you know, make sure you stay somewhere in contention, but the race isn't going to go until later on, unless somebody, you know, does something really nuts. Um, and the the whole pack kind of goes with them. And a couple of people did put in surges, but the the people we considered to be the main people we're going to have to watch out for didn't go. So, you know, I was in that pack, but I was not going to be one of the ones um, you know, making any moves back in 20, 2016. Okay. So it didn't yeah, go the way sense. that I wanted to. And I, and I thought, um, and a lot of that was due to like that entire marathon buildup. I was in pretty much constant pain from my Achilles. So it, it, before that point it had like been, or I could, once I warmed up, it would kind of recede. I would go away a little bit, but by 2015, that enti- pretty much the entire marathon build, it just never went away. So every run, it was just trying to, to manage it, try to get it to feel somewhat okay. So I could get the training in and I decided to do that training, you know, push through it because it was a marathon year. It only comes once every four years. So we're just going to knuckle down. I'm not going to miss this opportunity. Um, but at the same time, like I came in. So I think mentally, mentally drained of, of dealing with that. And so just over training, uh, over sort of in a, like a, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, cause I'm tired of hurting that by the time we got to the race, I, w- I wasn't ready to, um, to really do anything special. Um, but right. You get to go to the Olympic trials and you see people have success. And I got to see Jared Ward cross the line and Jared Ward and I have been, we're the same class. Mm. We have, we had pretty similar PRs. Um, we were footlocked together. Like that is someone I consider myself to be a very similar runner. And then to see him cross the line in third, Mm. um, that was definitely really motivating. It's like, you know, you see someone older than you, you see your, your Galen's and your Meb's and your Abdi's, um, they're a whole different class. They've been doing it for so long, but you see someone that uh, you've been comparing yourself to for a long time. Um, 
that gives you a slightly different perspective on it. And so I still have in the back of my mind, well, if you can get this Achilles taken care of, um, you can be back and you can put in some solid training. Um, but you need to get the Achilles back. So we still had the track trials because I had a qualifier from the previous year. So I did that, but I had already made the deal with myself that after the track trials, and this is probably, I probably shouldn't have done the track trials either mm-hmm. because my mindset was essentially get through the trials and then you can take care of your Achilles. Well, if you're just trying to get through something, you're not really there to compete. And those track trials, like, there were some opportunities because a bunch of people dropped out to try and save themselves for the 5K. So I ended up, I think, 12th in that race or something like that. Had I been in a better headspace to like really going in with the idea, I'm going to try and go out and compete and be be ready to hurt or be competitive here. I think I could have made some more moves and you know probably not made the team, um, but been a little bit more competitive than I was. But I was just I was just over it. Um, and so then I started focusing on trying to get my Achilles better, and that was obviously like a yeah a really long process. Yeah. Um, but I still had the idea that once it was taken care of, I could get back to training. And that's kind of what brought me out to to Boulder after I left the Hansons. Um, new scenery, work with a, a different coach, get some slightly different training um, going in. Um, but yeah, it, nothing, nothing was going to happen until it was taken care of once and for all. Yeah. And I mean, w- that was truly like a two-year process, wasn't it? It was three, almost, I guess it was two years and oh 11 months between the 2016 wow. trials and the first like community 5k that I did coming back. And what did you run your community 5k in? Oh gosh. Uh, I think I averaged like just over a five minute mile. So I was actually pretty happy with it. Um, it was the Colometry 5k, which is a surprisingly challenging course in Broomfield up here. Um, I, I don't know the time. Yeah. Um, but it did not feel good. Uh, it felt it felt good to like put on racing flats and be on a starting line again. But boy, uh, racing hurt for for a long time there. Like I I did like a coach threw me on the track to do like a thirty two hundred meter just kind of local race here, and boy, it felt awful. It's just when you come back, just everything hurts, and it, getting just getting back into the rhythm of things just takes so long. Um, so there were definitely a lot of doubts there as to whether or not I would ever get through that and get back to a place where um, running at a high level felt good again. Um, but, you know, I, I've been through enough buildups that I, I had a little bit of confidence that I just kept banging against that wall, kept banging against that wall. Um, eventually things would turn around. Um, but you make that many structural changes to kind of your gait and all this other kind of stuff there is that, that little doubting part of you that wonders if it's, if it's worth it or if it's ever going to work out. Wow. Such patience to go through all that and to still just not know, you know, like, is this going to, is this going to click? Is this going to happen? And that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Um, so was Chicago like the first race back where you were like, I have a legitimate shot to make this team? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, because we went in, we just wanted to get a, once we knew that the trials was going to be a gold label, now we knew we didn't have to knock Chicago out of the park because originally we went in thinking like, well, we got to lay it all on the table. We have to go for two eleven thirty, um, which at the time I was like, I would have been happy with like a two thirteen to two fourteen, just to similar back, close to back where I was when I made my debut. Wow. Um, so we went into Chicago with very low expectations as far as as time. It was as if you're going to go out, you're going to compete, and hopefully we're going to have like a 
a good marathon experience, right? You know, we don't want to go out there and die and we're going to get you through a healthy buildup. And then we'll take that as momentum going into the trials. And then we found out that there was going to be a pacer that was going out at like 105.30. There was going to be a big American pack. So it's like, well, we don't really have anything to lose. Tuck in that pack. Just hang on as long as you can. Let's just see what happens. And so jumped in the pack and just kept feeling good. Um, like I remember crossing, there's a, a bridge crossing right around 13 miles. And you're going right through downtown Chicago. And it's just, it's gorgeous. There's all the buildings around you. You're crossing the river. And I felt good enough that I could like look around me and smile and actually enjoy the experience oh, wow. a little bit, which is very, it's very strange um, to be, be able to do that kind of thing in a marathon where typically by 13, you're starting to feel it a little bit. <laughs> um, and yeah, I just, I just kept feeling good. And then I was able to, it wasn't just that I felt good for most of the race. It was that I was able to make moves and kind of dictate the pace a little bit towards the end. Like I was one of the ones still, um, yeah, still, still kind of, um, taking charge at the very end. Uh, and I think that more than anything was the thing that gave me confidence. So I finished as a top American, but I was one second ahead of Gerald mock. There were another couple guys within like 15 seconds of me, um, 10 guys under two twelve. So you, I technically had the fastest time, but that's not a lot of separation, right? Especially consider there's a whole other buildup to get through. So in terms of like the placing there, that wasn't what gave me confidence. It was more how I was able to compete over those last few miles. Um, I was able to be the one kind of putting the hurt on people and, and putting distance on people. Um, and I still had a kick at the very end. And so that I think was the biggest thing that gave me confidence. Yeah. And clearly you also had a kick at the end of the Olympic trials. Is that something that's always been a strength of yours? No, really. Uh, anyone that has ever trained with me will know that uh, the end of a race is when I am most vulnerable. <laughs> um, I mean, by the time you get to a marathon, a a kick is essentially anybody that can put in any sort of distance. We're not talking like a 10K where you're right. expected to close in like 55 or something like that. Um, but yeah, when I was at Stanford, I was a 5K, 10K person with emphasis on the 10K part, but I was training with um, Chris Derrick and Elliot Heath, and, and Elliot Heath, is, he was indoor national champion at the 3k. Um, I trained with his brother, Garrett Heath, who was second in the 1500. So when you're comparing yourself to guys like that, where they can just crush those last 400s, calling yourself someone with a kick is, um, yeah, not quite. Um, but at the same time, I did have a little bit of a mindset. And I think a lot of that has to do with Lee's training. We practice surging, um, a lot in our, um, in our workouts. And it's, it's not a big thing. It's just, we do a lot of pace change type of stuff. So I think compared to what I was doing before, I'm just a lot more used to, um, being able to get into a different rhythm, um, regardless of where I'm at in the middle of a race, uh, just because we, we do that so much. My legs are just used to switching gears a lot more than they, they have been before. So maybe I am more of a kicker now. We'll, we'll find out. Um, I think we're going to try and do some track stuff. So, We'll see if it carries over to the shorter format. Yeah, yeah. And that field in Chicago was super deep. There were so many guys in that pack. Um, what? Tell us about training with Lee Trope. Why did you decide to go that direction and just training in Boulder? What's that like? So I was looking for a new coach, and there was really I was looking for a new place to train. And I knew I wanted to go to grad school while I was training because um, I was trying to think a little bit farther ahead, a little bit more about future. So the places I was looking at, we all had 
good universities with good engineering programs. And then um, were, you know, there was some sort of training group that I could potentially join. And my friend, Chris Derrick, I was talking with him about it. He'd just done a training set in Boulder. And he said, hey, this guy, Lee Troop, he's got a, he's got a training group. And he's a really nice guy. You should just call him up, see what he says. Um, and so when I was looking into Lee Troop, at the time, he was training with John Gray, who uh, for a couple of years was just the road king. He was just crushing everything. He was winning every U.S. road championship. Um, and that was something that I, I wanted to do. I really enjoy road racing. Uh, and I've also competed against John for quite a few years. Um, I really respected him as a racer. And so I thought it would be a great opportunity to be able to be in a training group with him. Uh, and so then I called up. And then beyond that, Lee also was training Laura Thwett, who I looked a little bit more into at the time. She had had an awesome marathon time. He trained Sean Quigley, who was another uh, runner that I really, really respected. They're all kind of in that longer road distance, which is what I wanted to do. So I thought it would be a good fit. Um, you know, he's had success with these other people. Maybe we can have success with me. So I called him up and yeah, he just said, yeah, sure. Come on out. And so I packed up my car and came out. It was a little bit of a snap decision. Um, at that time I was still kind of coming out of a little bit of an emotional hole. I was living at home and like really wasn't sure what I wanted to do or where I wanted to be. And eventually I just decided like, you just need to take a jump. Um, which I don't think is a very inspiring reason to choose a coach, but, um, yeah, so I just decided to to roll the dice and move out to Boulder. I figured, you know, it's going to be a relatively big city. If there's a good school here, even if running isn't quite working out, like you could do worse than than being there. Um, and so I came out and joined Lee. And at that time, I was still coming back from I think I was in the middle of my third buildup. So I it would I with my Achilles, I was in one of those places where I try a new doctor or a new therapy, and then I would slowly try to build back into into fitness, and then. I'd have a setback and I'd have to restart. And so when I came out to Boulder, I was in the middle of my third buildup. I'd had PRP, PRP injections a few months ago. I'd been in a boot for a little bit and then I was slowly trying to get back into activity. So I was running a little bit. Um, and so Lee got me, uh, just as I was starting to get to a place where I could potentially put in like seven days a week of running, um, and start to, to wean off of cross training. Uh, and so, started training with him just a little bit. I was starting to get into tempos, um, you know, put in a little bit of interval work. Uh, and then I had another setback. It just flared up again, um, back to limping. Um, and so then I, I mean, we've talked about the the process of getting the surgery in a couple of places, but um, that would have been early 2018 that we finally had to, to call it from that buildup. All right, friends, I want to take a quick break to let you know that this podcast, I'll have another with Lindsay Hine as part of the Sandy Boy Productions podcast network. Make sure you check out our other shows, the Illuminate podcast and the Up and Running podcast. And if you're looking for bonus episodes for me, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Lindsay Hine. All right, let's enjoy the rest of my conversation with Jake Riley. Wow, so much has happened since then. I I want to hear you talk about um, like your mental mindset going into the trials because, you know, the mainstream like running news would have said Galen Rupp, Jared Ward, Scott Fobble are like the top picks to make the team, right? Um, so as someone going into the trials knowing like, actually, I have a really good shot too. Um, and you along with several other people, you know, like Abdi, obviously, I had a great shot. So did, does, 
that did that noise ever get to you? And what was your headspace like? Um, well, it gives you like a little bit of a chip on your shoulder. Like, I was talking American in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Why aren't you talking about me more? But at the same time, Scott and Jared are both 209 runners. Uh, Leonard Career ran 207 in his debut. Gosh. And Galen has been the most dominant force in distance running for forever. So I, I kind of used it as a little bit of motivation and kind of um, I would let it make me just like a little bit angry. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, like I get it, right? It, if you were going to be betting, those are the names to bet on. And, you know, I can't really complain about it or prove anybody wrong until I actually go out and, and prove it in a performance. So um, I, this is the, one of my issues is uh, I don't read a ton of, of sort of running news. I, I don't go on Let's Run at all. I try to stay off of like the main running Twitter and all this other kind of stuff because uh, it gets my blood up. It gets me really uh, antsy, which in some cases is a good thing, right? It, it kind of motivates you to go out and run. Um but I think a little bit too much of it and it, it just gets in your head. So I tuned a lot of it out. Um, and so, you know, it was just, we're going to get to the trials. You can't show anybody anything until you get to the trials. And, you know, with a marathon, especially a championship marathon where everybody's coming in and they, um, you know, you have to be your best or that's kind of the, the perception out there is you need to be in the best shape of your life and you need to go in ready to crush it that kind of thinking can sometimes lead people to, to make mistakes, to overtrain, And then once they get in the race to do the same thing. And so, you know, on race day, there'll be about like 20% of the people in that line. They're not there ready to race. They had some sort of issue in their buildup. So they, you know, maybe they got sick. Maybe they had a little bit of an injury, um, whatever it was, their buildup didn't go well. They're coming in a little bit overcooked, way too undercooked. And so they're probably not going to be a factor. And then, Within the race, there's probably going to be another 20-25% that they just don't race well. For whatever reason on that day, they're just having a bad day. Mm. They got the, the, the stress of it got to them. The adrenaline got to them. They made the wrong moves early on. Um, and sometimes, sometimes you just feel flat and you don't know why on race day. And that sucks, but that leaves you, right? So, like, I don't know, 40 to 50% of the races or the, the racers are already um, – you know, no matter how good you are, that kind of stuff can, can happen to you. And so I knew going in that I'd put myself in a position, I'd taken care of the things I could take care of. So I'd had a buildup where I was healthy pretty much the entire time. So we didn't really have any, any major setbacks. I didn't have the flu um, or anything like that in the middle of the buildup. Um, I had done all of my, my strength training and my mobility around the running. Um, I improved my diet um, and I think one of the biggest differences between who I was before the injury and who I am now is I trained with a lot more just sense of purpose. I think mm-hmm. in a lot of my trials races, I went in without clear goals. I, you know, you have the goal, I want to do well, um, but I don't think I went in knowing what that meant or what that meant I had to do in order to achieve it. And so going into this trials, I was much more just laser focused on exactly what it was I wanted to accomplish and what I felt I needed to do to accomplish it. Um, and so, yeah, just, I went in knowing exactly, exactly what I wanted out of the race and exactly what my, my goals are. And I think that was, that's a much better headspace to be in, um, because 
you know, I'd been ready to compete sort of mentally for, for months at that point. And then, you know, then you finally get the opportunity to do it. We were spectating your race at mile 17 and then we got to see you coming in the finish and we made it just to mile 26, right as you were coming down and to hear you talk about what you were thinking about leading into the race and all the preparation and to have got to witness you coming down, fighting for that spot with those three guys. It's just so cool. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm not gonna lie. I've watched that video, that finish line <laughs> quite a bit. Um, yeah, I, you know, if I want to give myself a little adrenaline pump, I just get to to open that up, um, and it feels good. And so, you know, that's how when you you work through these scenarios in your head, even if you don't know you're going to be at the race, like this is how you dream of races finishing, uh, right? Uh-huh. This is like that, you know, bottom of the ninth thing that baseball players envision. Like when you envision yourself making a team, or sort of if you run through your fantasies in your head or whatever, it's not like. Sometimes you might visualize it as like a, a runaway race and sort of you're pumping your fist for the last five miles. But I think a lot of people, you know, you envision it coming down <clears throat> three people for two spots. You've got to outkick somebody oh else. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, it's on the line. It's all in your hand. You know, that would be the, the kind of the music swelling Hollywood ending type of thing. Um, and that's actually how it played out. And that's uh, that's that's really, really cool. I got to, to live out a little bit of little fantasy. And I, I, I literally pictured that finish almost every day for the, the previous three months. Um, wow. Like you said, this is a really stacked field. This is a lot of really good people, all with the idea of, of having a really good shot. So I came in with the expectation that doesn't matter how good you prep, like there's going to be some people with some good prep in there as well. So it probably is going to have to come down to trying to, to separate yourself from, from people over the last mile. And you need to come in ready to, to, to push all the way to the line. Cause there's a, there's not a very good chance that you're going to be kind of separated out there and there's probably going to be somebody there. Yeah. But weren't you like, man, could it just be the two of us so that like, we don't have to be scared that I'm actually accidentally going to get fourth here. (laughs) That, uh, yes, that was definitely a a big thought. So I caught, um, (laughs) I caught that chase group at 24 and at that point, I, I, I had a lot of momentum going into that because I'd been chasing them down. And I don't think they knew I was there. Ah. And it's I, – I, I haven't talked to Abdi about this or anybody else in the group. But I think once Galen put in his final separation, uh-huh. I think they thought, okay, we're not going to catch Galen today. So now you know, we've already separated ourselves from the chase pack. This is a three-man race for second or second and third. And so we don't need to worry about the people behind us. We need to worry about each other. And I think that's why I was able to catch them so much. They didn't think they had to, to press as much. Like when you put that big of a gap and you've already dropped two people from the group, you're not expecting the danger to come from behind. And then all of a sudden <laughs> I'm in the middle of that pack. And all of a sudden there's another person and this person has momentum. He's kind of running through the pack. That's disheartening, right? Like that's a, a change in the plan. You weren't really mentally prepared for that. And so you saw with Augustus, I think he'd been kind of hanging on by his fingernails a little bit. He was tired, but the pack was kind of keeping it together and it didn't take a whole lot for him to break off. Mm. And so when I joined that pack, that was kind of my goal is like, you can't just sit here and try and tuck in because that's going to give them a chance to kind of re- regroup. You need to push. And if you give them a, a good push, they're going to drop. Mm. And then they didn't drop <laughs> and they kept not dropping. And so I kept trying to put in these moves on the downhill. That's, that's how I like to run it. I like to do maintain on the up and then put in a big surge on a downhill and open up a gap so that then they have to, to close it when they get on the, the flat, which is a little harder. 
And so I kept doing that and they kept not dropping. And so we got some separation on Leonard, which was, I was a little bit more worried about him because he's mm, got mm-hmm. at this point in his career, he's, he's got the the shorter pedigree. Um, but he, so he, he, I, I got a gap, but he just would not go away. And so, yeah, for a while there, I was kind of like shaking my head internally in frustration. It's just like, just, just go away. Just let me finish this darn <laughs> race. I have, I have my spot right now. I it would just be absolutely gutting to have it go away right now. Like I've, I've let myself believe just don't, just don't take it away. And then a lot of it is made of this, but I grabbed the flag in the last 600. And that's because I thought I had the spot locked up because in my head at the time, I was thinking they wouldn't be handing out flags if there were any doubt, mm. right? Because that would be terrible. Like no one, <laughs> no one would do that to a finisher, like give it to them. And then all of a sudden have the opportunity to be caught. And so now watching the video, I see how close Leonard was like, it was absolutely insane to take that flag. And immediately <laughs> after I took it, I realized that mm, that logic might be flawed. They might've just been told to stand out there and hand out flags. Like <laughs> you, you probably should not be feeling as confident as you are. Um, and then, yeah, luckily I, I had a little bit of gas left in the tank. I was able to put in my move. Did you look back to see where uh, Leonard was? No, there was one turn, I think with like 12 or 1600 to go where we, we, we took a 90 degree turn. And so I could take a little glance over my shoulder. Um, but once you start looking over your shoulder, one, I think that gives the person behind you a little bit of a fire, like, Oh, this guy's worried. He doesn't mm-hmm. feel confident. Mm-hmm. And then also you turn your shoulder, you, you turn around, that's going to break your stride a little bit and there's not a whole lot you can, you can do. And so I think I've said this a couple of times as well. It's better to be the hunter at the end of the race than the hunted, mm. right? So if you can turn that into like an active, I am trying to beat someone that is much more mentally motivating, I think, than I am trying to not get beat. So I was more focused on Abdi was still there. Abdi was still, was, we were trading leads. And so you just need to worry about beating Abdi. He's someone you can see. He's someone you, you can't control that, but like you can key off of that. So Leonard's going to do what Leonard's going to do. But if you're pressing and pressing and pressing, Six meters is still six meters. It's a big gap to close when you are that tired. Um, so just f- just focus on beating Opti and let the race play out in back of you how it's going to play out. Yeah, I'm interested to know um, about your patience in the race because I think it's a it's how you raced was a very mature way to race, um, and it's got to be a little bit intimidating because you know if you if you go out and, you know, grab that chase pack too early, you might blow up. So, um, is that just something that you've just trained your brain to do? Um, I, well, I'll come back to that. I do think we have trained me to handle that kind of race. Um, we have a couple of key workouts that I, I give a lot of credit for, for being able to do that. Um, but that was the race plan going in. We knew that with the, the headwind and the hills, um, if you add having to cover a bunch of surges and and really trying to race the race from really far out, it's going to take a toll. Mm. And the really tough thing about the marathon is you come in ready to run 26, which means that like even through halfway, 15, 16 miles, you should still be looking and feeling pretty good. You know, the marathon doesn't go south until – a long way after there's time to do anything about it, right? You can look good through 21 and then just absolutely crater. Um, and so we figured 
the patience there was all about, right, you're going to conserve your energy so when you do finally try to make your move, you're going to have more legs than anybody else in the field. Because people that have been trying to cover that stuff, which is what the that front army pack did, so Matt McDonald did, was they started trying to cover surges when Galen started making them, mm. which meant that they essentially had three, four miles more of just this mental energy, um, a little bit more wind, right? I was able to stay in a bigger pack for a long time or a longer time. Um, they had more of that in their legs. And so once they, they fell off the once they fell off Galen and they started just trying to, to bring it home, um, they just weren't able to press the way that I was able to press. Um, because, and the other part was like, I had somebody that I was chasing in the front. Like I could see myself making chunk gains on them. Whereas they're seeing Galen get farther and farther away. And so it's a little bit more motivating if you have people to chase down. Cause also I was able to see McDonald kind of coming back. Um, and a couple other guys that I was able to use as kind of landmarks on my way to the front group. I was able to say, okay, catch this guy and then catch that guy. Um, I was able to set myself little mini goals along the way. Um, so Lee's talked about his training in a couple different in spots. Um, we have a big workout we call Teller Farm, and it's not a very creative name because we do it at this running or this um, this park called Teller Farm. Uh, but it is a four mile, very hilly tempo um, that's there to just make your legs really tired. And then it's a little bit over 5K of just go. So just whatever you have left, you're just going to run it as fast as you can, um, which is a very different type of mental mindset than like you need to go run a time or you need to go run a pace right there. You can kind of parcel out your energy and say like, okay, well I know about what this pace costs. And so I'm going to put in that amount of energy. Whereas when it's go, it's just, it's whatever you have, whatever you have, you're going to put it in this. And that's 15, uh, you know, 16 minutes of just grind. Just how much can you push yourself? How hard can you keep your foot on the pedal? And Teller Farm, I think, is a great. It's a, it's like that. It's like that Atlanta course in mini. So it's really, really hilly early on, and it's kind of trying to stay relaxed and not let not get too beaten up. That's the tempo part, which is essentially what the first 16, 17 miles of this race was. And then when it's time to go, you have to be able to like stay mentally focused and pressing, and you you just can't let up. You just have to grind and grind and grind, and that's been a mental challenge for me but i also think um it's super super helpful in especially a marathon context where there's a very good chance you're going to find yourself at no in no man's land at some point right you're going to be off on your own and so you have to have the the mental fortitude to be able to internally motivate yourself and to to get into a different rhythm um and be able to press yourself as hard as you can. And that's not something that comes easy, um, especially when a lot of marathon training is about kind of grinding it out at this, this pace and keeping yourself in kind of a steady state um, where you're conserving energy. Pressing is the, the antithesis of that. And so I, th- I credit Teller Farm quite a bit with like getting me ready um, to, to be able to go when it was time to go. How long's the tempo portion of that workout? We call it 5K. Okay. Um, okay. I personally think it's 3.3. Okay. It's, it's somewhere around there. I mean, it's a GPS watch and there's lots of turns. So who the heck knows what it really is? It it doesn't really matter. And so sure. there there are we like we time it, but 
but those times have absolutely no meaning to anybody because it's, it's slightly uphill. There's lots of turns. It's slightly over 5K. The time is not what's important. And that's, I think, one of the things that Lee has been having to, to explain to so many people is like, we do 50 to 60 minutes on a Monday and like we do kind of interval sessions and people are, I think, very surprised that we don't do more stuff at marathon pace. Um, but just a lot of the times it just, it just doesn't matter. You just, you go out and you run hard. Um, and that's kind of what we do with timing. And so the, the actual time you run for that segment doesn't really matter. It's more in comparison to how you've done it before. So we do that build up twice. How are you doing in comparison to the time you did it earlier in this segment? And then how does this compare to other buildups you have? So one of the way, like one of the first indicators I have that I was really fit going into this race was that I did that Teller Farm workout about, I think, five or six seconds faster than I did, or the, the ending 5K. I did it faster than I did for my Chicago buildup. Okay. okay. And I think it was in tougher conditions this time around. And so I was like, you know, at this same place last time, I am better than I was. And so... Um, I think that was also one of my first, um, it was just a good, uh, supporting piece of evidence that I was on the right track. Okay. And this is a boring question, but I just feel like I always have to ask, uh, how many miles a week did you peak out at and what were you doing on average? Uh, I, my peak was 112 okay. and most of them were kind of in the 105 to 110 range. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So is yeah. there anything from this race that, I don't know that you learned that you will take with you to Tokyo. Um, the, the competing at the very end there. So I think in Chicago, I knew all the guys that I was around. Well, most of the guys that I was around, I think Gerald and McDonald were a little bit of a, a surprise, but like other guys in that pack were like Parker Stinson, who I've raced since college, Andrew Bumbleo, who I've known for a long time. He's, we have lots of mutual friends. Um, and so you can feel comfortable looking around at a bunch of guys that you know and you've raced before. Like, I don't know how many championship races I've raced Parker against, but we've, we've raced each other a bunch. Um, but like Abdi and Leonard, I have very little experience racing. In them. I have been in races with them, um, but they're sort of new, unfamiliar faces, which makes – I think it that makes it harder to have confidence that you can – they're, they're just a little bit more of an unknown factor. So when you make a move, you're not quite as uh, confident in how you think they're going to respond. And that's going to be the Olympics, right? It's people from every nationality. And it's a lot of like very, very good runners with very, very good credentials. You know, Leonard career is, I think he's run sub 60 for the half. He's 27, 20 guy. Like those are the kinds of credentials and those better that I'm going to be facing. Um, but this kind of just reinforces the idea that, the marathon is a, it can be a huge equalizer. We're going to be in challenging conditions in support. It's going to be hot. It's going to be humid. There's going to be surging on the front. And so if I find myself kind of in a race to grind, in a race to compete, to grab a spot at the very end there, this is, this is evidence that I can do that, that I can be um, competing against someone there towards the very end. Um, and so I, I really want to remember that for this next race all of the times, all of the races that you've run going in, doesn't matter if that race takes you out of it, there are opportunities to beat some people. And I think that's kind of the mindset I need to have. You know, I'm not a 204 guy or a 203 guy going in. So once again, I'm not going to be on anybody's radar. I'm not going to be any one of the favorites, um, but it's a championship race in challenging conditions. And so there's, I think, going to be opportunity to compete against people um, and, and put the hurt on in the end if we go in with a smart race plan, take care of what we can take care of. 
Yeah. You know, it sounds like we all should have had Leonard career on our radar for like that. That should have been a person we were talking about for those top three spots, but everybody was zoned in on those three guys. Well, Jared's been there before and Scott's Scott's um, Boston time was really impressive. Totally. And so everybody was absolutely right to talk about those guys and we should still be talking about them because I think they're both going to come back on the track and they're going to come back mad and that's going to be, um, <laughs> it's going to be hard on anybody that has to race them. Um, and I, I think Leonard was, he was the fourth name. I think we were talking about like the, the four, fa- everything I saw was the four favorites. And I think Leonard was in that, uh-huh. that 207. Um, that's so fast. That was a little bit disheartening <laughs> seeing that as uh-huh. like, Oh crap, there's another guy I have to worry about. Uh-huh. I thought uh-huh. I was going to get one more cycle before he decided to, to move to the marathon. And it was, a I was a little, uh, frustrating that I had another guy to worry about. Um, yeah, I always assumed that Leonard was going to be one of the other guys on that team. Um, his credentials are just, they're just too good to, to ignore. Yeah. And I think part of it's probably just the media coverage, right? You know, like who's, who's done a lot of interviews and things like that. That's who like more <laughs> casual people who are casual fans of the sport are going to know about. So that's probably a piece of it as well. Yeah, and that was one of the infuriating things watching the NBC coverage. Not necessarily <laughs> Leonard, though. I don't think they talked about him enough uh, in the coverage. Uh, but like, they didn't get Sally's medal right. Oh. Like, she's an Olympic silver medalist, and yes. they're not even talking about her. And they they mentioned something about like Olympic experience. They didn't get the medal right. I don't even know if they mentioned that she was a medalist, which is just Absurd. that's just insane to me. Yeah, that the coverage at that level is not acknowledging that there's an Olympicist in the field is just ridiculous. Um, and so I think a lot of people that should have gotten their due didn't get their due, which is not, I think super surprising because every four years we go through this, people come in, they've got their, like their little list. And then for some reason, every single time they're just blown away that like in a championship race, something different happens. You would think we would have learned our lesson at this point. Um, you know, I still think that no one would have had Molly Seidel on that list because she never no. ran a marathon before. No. So she really was the darkest of dark horses. Um, but like Sally should not have been like blowing anybody's minds. That no. She was that good. Alephine has clearly been crushing it for, for years and years and years. Like she really shouldn't have been that much of a surprise. Now I say that. And I also, if I was going to bet on one of the, um, the NAZ girls, my money was on uh, Kellen who obviously had a really good race, but um, yeah, the perspective probably should have been a little bit broader going in. For sure. Um, And so I will remember that going into the next trials and hopefully everybody else will too. I agree. Yeah. And I actually, I kind of had my money on uh, Kellen as well. And it was so exciting to see um, what Alphine and Sally did. And I agree with Molly. It's like the only, it's not that I didn't believe in her talent and her ability and her hard work. It's just like the marathon is such an unknown until you do it. So I, she was definitely the biggest surprise in my book. Well, and also to debut on that particular course, <laughs> right? You go out and you run like a Chicago where it's a little bit more flat and it's a little bit more of a rhythm. Sure. That's one thing, but this was not an easy course. I will say, I think the fact that the woman's pack stayed, together for so long and there's so many so much experience in that pack it was probably really helpful that she could just kind of tuck in uh-huh. it's like okay well i have the i don't know how many marathon experience was in that group of like 10 12 women but it's like 30 40 marathons between them probably more than that i mean yeah. desi has almost 20 on her own so 
yeah, we're probably talking 50, 60 marathons. So like, it's really easy to know you're doing the right thing when you have Desi, Kellen, Stephanie, Laura, um, all of those women right there. You just tuck in and go to sleep. And then obviously she has a very good half marathon. She's a great cross country runner. So like the end of a race is the end of a race. You know how to compete. And so if you can keep yourself in it, well, then it's just go do what you can do. So I, I guess in one sense, the cars being tough was a challenge, but at the same time, um, she got, she got to the, the best initiation you can because the amount of experience in front of her probably made it a little bit easier to, to know she was doing the right thing. Yeah. When you finished, um, obviously you were so elated and celebrating what just happened, but did you guys like, what did that look like? Were you guys standing around then waiting to see what was going to happen with the women's team? Uh, they were very antsy to get us to hurry up and stand in different places. And they didn't really know where they wanted us to stand, but they knew they wanted us to stand somewhere. And so they would, we had this like little handler that kept saying, like, okay, guys, get in here. And then they would like switch our order around. Okay, now face this way. Wait, nope, you need to face this way. And it was really frustrating because I wanted to see how the, the race behind me was playing out. And I wanted to see how the women were playing out once I'd gotten over the initial just sort of uh, shock of knowing that I'd made the team. I, I wanted to see how that thing was going to play out and I missed it. And I was really, really bummed because they just kept taking us to all these places and then not really doing anything with us. Mm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and so that was a little bit frustrating. Um, but yeah, it was, I did get to see the, uh, the NAZ hug and I did get to mm. see kind of th- how things played out eventually. Um, and then when they brought us together for the big group pictures, I was able to give some congratulations out, um, which felt good. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm so happy for you. I, I like, you know, I just heard of you when you ran Chicago. And then when I saw you coming down that last stretch, I screamed like I knew you, like we were good friends. I was like, oh my gosh, that's Jacob Riley, (laughs) you know, and I was so excited. So, um, and I know I'm not the only one who, who felt that way. And, you know, we couldn't see where you guys were, you know, I saw the pack and everything mm-hmm. at mile 17, but from then until when we ran to the finish line, we had no idea who was doing what. So you, to just see you guys coming down that, that stretch was really cool. So I'm just really, really excited for you. Thank you so much. I'm, yeah, everybody that I have come in contact so far has been, have been excited and it's, it's just really fun to share that excitement with them. Okay, so I always wrap up with some end of the podcast questions, which for these um, trials recap episodes, sometimes they fa- feel a little bit irrelevant, but I'm going to go ahead and, and throw them in there. So what's one thing professionally or personally that you'd like to do that you have not done yet? World Cross Country Championships. Okay. When's that? Um, so they're actually selecting a team. So that would be, we would select the team, I think, somewhere time in February of 2021, and then I think they usually have the worlds around like May or something or not May, um, April, I think maybe March. Um, but yeah, it would be early 2021. Okay. So run the Olympics and then, and then get your sights set on that. Yeah. Well, cross country is my first love. It's how I, I like, that's what really made me want to be a runner. Um, and I, I've been able to have some good club cross country championships, but I've like, never been able to put it together at the U S cross country championships. And so Olympics is always one, a number one with a bullet. Um, but if I had a second goal, it would be to make a world cross country team. Um, I just, I love cross country and I'd love to get the the chance to compete against the best in the world there. Why do you love, like, what is it about cross country that you love so much? 
Um, well, the courses are, are more interesting than the track. Like track, you're just running in circles for a little while, whereas in cross country, you get to um, you're, you're you're running corners, you're running hills that, and that just puts an old, whole other dimension to the experience um, of racing. And you know, you get, it gets it gets muddy, so it just feels like more of a grind, more of a, a more of a battle um, than I think sometimes in track, where a lot of times you're just focused on kind of getting into a rhythm. Whereas cross country, you really feel like you're competing not just against the other guys, but against the elements. Uh, and then also, I think one of the main reasons I fell in love with it is I came from a team sport background and I was a soccer player. And running is very much of an individual thing, but cross country brings you back to that team element. And so, um, you know, in high school, you have your even though you're running your own race, you have teammates there. And in college, that was always my my favorite part was to be able to go, you know, do the race warm up with a bunch of other guys that all have the same goal. And so the team aspect, I think is another really big reason to, to love cross country, Yeah, which is why it should be an Olympic sport. Yeah, uh, it should be put that in the winter, put it in the winter Olympics for Call sure. Right now, maybe I have some, maybe I have some swing with the IOC at this point. Yeah. Now you have a little clout. You're an Olympian for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I do, I do think that's why, you know, that like you have, you mentioned the NAZ elite team and stuff. I feel like when people are on teams like that, where they're all racing together, that probably gives them a little bit more of that feel. Yeah. I mean, you see all their posting and like they're hugging each other and shaking hands after the race. And that's a great feeling. And that's what we have here too. So I have two training partners. They've been, um, they've been very, very nice to help me out with some marathon stuff, which is especially, we have a steeplechase from the team and it's not quite his cup of tea to go out and do six, 10 mile <laughs> tempos. Um, but they've been out to help me out. We've done, long runs together. Uh, if you have to do that grind solo, it's a whole other mental game. And so to have people out there to help push you, um, and to just, just be company sometimes, um, is a really, really big and important, um, factor in my training. Um, and I think anybody out there who's trying to do it solo should rethink their process because having (laughs) teammates is best. Yeah, I agree. What's an accomplishment you're most proud of? Besides making the Olympic team? No, that can um, totally be your answer. Oh, well, then it's, it's make the Olympic team. And there's, there's <laughs> not even a question. This is so far and above anything I've ever done in my career. Um, that, yeah, it's, it's, it's got to be that. That's wonderful. Okay, if you could have coffee, cocktail, or tea with someone fun, motivating, or inspiring, who would it be? Oh, boy. A person from throughout history. Um, it would be, um, I guess, a cocktail with like, Leonardo da Vinci. He mm. seems like he would have been a fun person and it's long enough in the past. There'd be stuff to talk about. I don't know. He seems like a really interesting guy and I bet he'd be a fun drunk. So yeah, cocktail with Leonardo da Vinci. What's your cocktail of choice? Um, Moscow mule. Okay. Two more questions. Best, most recent book you've read. Um, I have not finished it yet, but I'm reading a gentleman in Moscow, which is, it's not like a super exciting book, but it's just about like a guy living through the Russian revolution in this hotel. And it's just sort of quietly funny and um, like little character portraits. And it's just, it's really, really good. So I haven't technically finished it. So I'm cheating a little bit, but um, that's the, that's the book I'm reading right now. And I'm really enjoying it. You know, when Des Linden was on this podcast, that's the book she said. So it must be an Olympian thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she is a a great role model to have. And so that makes me really happy. And if you had one message to send to the world, what would it be? Just keep grinding. I, I don't know. That really is, I think, the, the secret. It's not a secret um, to success, but, like, you just got to keep putting the time. Um, 
you know, there are plenty of sort of inspiring, like little one-off phrases you can have out there. But I think a lot of times when we try to inspire ourselves and motivate ourselves, we kind of miss the idea that in between the setting of a goal and the achieving of a goal, there's a lot of like really, really hard work that is not enjoyable and it can be boring and frustrating and, and, and setbacks. And so, um, when I, 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 I like kind of like to acknowledge that when I try to motivate myself, it's like, this is going to be hard. And so contained within that is the hard work. But I also think, um, it's sort of a, a an ethic that will get you through just the amount of, of, of work it takes to achieve something. So yeah, it's, um, achieving something great is a lot of times it's a grind and that doesn't, um, and that's, if it's worth it for you, it's worth it. And, um, yeah, just keep grinding. Yeah. The glamorous part was when you were sprinting to the finish there, but there was a lot of grinding that went into that. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of like tousled hair mornings, like on a foam roller or out, like wiping snot off your face in 15 degree days, like that, a lot of really unglamorous, um, boring, hard, painful stuff went into making that moment happen. Um, but that, you know, that's worth it. That's also, um, that's, that's what makes the moment when it happens that much sweeter is, I mean, I was pumping my fist across that line and that's sort of the release of Mm. so much pent up, uh, adrenaline and emotional energy just all coming out at once. Um, it just makes the moment so much more pass- powerful, you know, the more you've put into it when it finally pays off, the more I think you get out of it, uh, you know, the, the more, the more you return you get as far as satisfaction. I love that. Well, Jake Riley, thank you so much for taking your time. I know that you've probably had a gazillion media requests, so I appreciate you including me in that. Well, yeah, and I'm uh, my voice. I'm still on the verge of having it it go because I've been talking to a lot of people, and so I'm sorry if I was a little little rumbly on here. Um, but it was great talking to you. Thanks so much for having me on. It sounds lovely. It doesn't sound rumbly, so it sounds great to me. Oh, good. <laughs> All right, have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in today. I hope you're enjoying these extra episodes with the Olympic marathon trials athletes. You can follow Jake on Instagram. He's Jake Bill Riley on Instagram. And you can find him on Twitter. Also Jake B. Riley. You can find me on Instagram. I'm Lindsay Hine 626. You can find me on Twitter at Lindsay Hine. And you can find me on Facebook. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine where we have a group as well. And you should definitely get in on that group. It's a really fun place and community to get involved with others who are listening to this podcast. All right, don't forget to check out the other shows in the Sandy Boy Productions Network, the Illuminate Podcast, and the Up and Running Podcast. Make sure you are also subscribed to the show so you don't miss any bonus episodes I drop. Another one coming up with Alephine Tuliamak, the Olympic Marathon Trials Champion, this weekend. All right, friends, have a really great rest of your day, and thank you for being here. <laughs>